This last week, I had a distinct privilege uh, to be able to sit through about an hour-long sales pitch. Have you ever sat through one of these? Uh, someone was coming to, to sell some insurance, and uh, um, you know how sales pitches work. You know, basically, the fundamentals of it is that you're trying to do two things if you're trying to sell something. You're trying to uh, communicate to the consumer Uh, you need this product. It's something that you need. It's something that will improve and enhance your life. And at the same time, you're trying to minimize the cost of it. Trying to say it's not that costly. It it will benefit you. Uh, It's worth the cost because of what you're going to get out of it. And in this particular sales pitch, uh, the salesperson did what I think is called in the sales world an oversell she made a comment that I probably just got away from her in the moment. You know, she might have thought we were... I, it was myself and a group of folks who were sitting through this sales pitch. And I think she, she started to get excited, you know, like we were moving into the place where we were going to buy. And she let a, a phrase slip out of her mouth, and we just died laughing. It wasn't meant to be funny. But she said, basically, our company wants to give you money. And... Myself and Eric was actually sitting through the presentation with me. We turned around, with, looked at each other, and died laughing. It's like, do I have a sign on me that says stupid? You know, is something written on my forehead? You know, it was just like, you know, you just went a little too far. We both know that's not true, and we both know that's never true. But it's kind of the way that it goes in our culture. I mean, we're, we're constantly bombarded with those kind of messages, with those kind of offers, with these unrealistic kind of promises that just never really come through. We live in a culture of hype. It's a culture of consumerism where much is promised, little is delivered, but yet with consumerism, you're always looking to the next thing in order to deliver. For instance, see if a few of these things sound familiar to you. These are real ads just from this past week that, that were bombarding me. One was, lose 30 pounds in 30 days with no diet and no exercise with this one simple technique. Here's another one. Single mom works at home, earns $80,000 in her spare time on the computer. No problem. Here's how you do it. Buy this product here. You know, take this pill. It will improve your life. It will fix everything. We live in an infomercial kind of culture where we're constantly being approached with new products. Products that are going to improve our life. They're going to maximize our happiness. And so you see, being in a culture like this, being a consumer, tends to make you approach life in a particular way. Approach life from the perspective of, I'm the consumer, I'm in control, I'm evaluating my options, and I'm choosing the one that will maximize my happiness. It's kind of what we're trained to be as consumers. We tend to look for the easy route, the easy way, the comfortable path, the the path of least resistance. And so easily, this kind of approach to life bleeds into our faith. Even in our culture, so often today, the way that the Christian life, the way that the faith is portrayed and sold 
is in a very consumeristic way. Like, get Jesus. He will make you happy. He will fulfill all that you're longing for. Health, wealth, prosperity can be yours. And it's actually just a way of adding Jesus on top of all of the other things that we're looking to for happiness. But Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount speak right into the face of that message of the culture. As Jesus says, this way, this path to life, it's narrow. The entrance is very small. The Christian life is not just easy and simple that you can go along with the flow and just find it. No, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. It takes great diligence. So Jesus, right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, is wanting to communicate that to us as a way of warning us to be alert, to take His words and to apply them into our life. So in our passage, we'll see two basic things. One is Jesus takes these two different paths and He compares them one to one another. And then we'll look at what is the uniqueness of the gospel? What is the uniqueness of this narrow way to life? That's what we'll see in our passage. So as we jump into these two verses, we find ourselves at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount since Easter. You realize that? We've spent some time in the Sermon on the Mount. And you've noticed the kind of things that Jesus says. Some of the things He has said are absolutely shocking. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is He is portraying the resurrection life. He is painting a picture for us of the kind of life that we were created for. The kind of life that He intends to produce in the people that are in union with Him. This is the kind of life that we were always intended for and the kind of life we will be redeemed into. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about this kind of attitude of heart at the very beginning. The starting place is an attitude of heart of utter dependence and humility upon Him. From that, we see that we are to be a people who are bearing witness to the wonders of the kingdom as salt and light in a world that's filled with brokenness. Next, we talk about the character and quality of life that He calls us to that is essentially to be the kind of people that love one another so deeply, a people of forgiveness, a people of love, a people of purity, that will go even so far as to love our enemies. Then Jesus talks about how our righteousness is not going to be something that's just an external, just doing the right things. It's got to go all the way to the core of your heart. A secret kind of righteousness that is fixed upon God. And He calls us to a a kind of a kingdom allegiance that depends on God for everything, that turns away from worry and anxiety and control and fixes ourselves on God as Father. It's what we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount. As we come to these verses here, the conclusion of the sermon, Jesus gives us a series of images, a series of two images that He contrasts. Here, two gates and two paths. Next, He talks about two different kinds of trees, Two different ways to respond to His words. Two different ways to, in other words, build our life. And that's what we'll see as we close out the entirety of the sermon. But today, Jesus shows us the picture of two different paths. They're completely opposite. They arrive at completely different destinations. Now, even by the fact that Jesus has simplified 
all the kind of paths that one might find in their life, down to two, is itself a speaking against our culture. We live in a culture right now where there are unlimited kind of paths to find fulfillment or to find God or to find whatever it is you're looking for. And the ethic of our culture is, you define what's right. There are many paths to God. Follow whatever path is in your heart. Those kind of things, those kind of messages are constantly bombarding us in our culture. But Jesus speaks right against that by saying, there are only two paths. You can sum all of those different paths that we see in our culture, you can sum them up into one single path, the path to destruction and the path to life. Now, this was an image that he would have been borrowing from that his audience would have been well aware of. You see, in ancient cities, the cities were walled, and there would have been gates, all kinds of different gates. Even in Jerusalem, there were many, many, many gates. There were, some were, were very broad, where you can drive a couple cars through at the same time. Other gates were really, really small. So small, in fact, that only one person could go through at a time. And that's the image that Jesus is drawing on here. And he says, the path to destruction was big. It's wide open. It's easy to find. In fact, many are finding their way through it. This this gate, this entrance, it's so wide that you can come through with whatever you want to bring with you. Most people are going through it and once through and on this path, well, it's broad. What does he mean by that? It's easy. It's easy to remain on it. There's, There's plenty of space for all kinds of different approaches on this path that leads to destruction. But the path that leads to life, Jesus says, is very different. The gate is very small. Have you ever tried to fit through a really tight space? A couple weeks ago, I took my boys to Rock City. And, you know, we came to the famous uh, Fat Man Squeeze. And on this particular day, Gray, my youngest, decided he wanted to be held the whole day. Okay? So I'm holding gray, you know, I'm a little worn out, and we come to Fat Man Squeeze, and I could not get through there holding him. It's just impossible. If you've been through there, it's really tight. You don't have to be fat to be squeezed by this thing. And so we come up to it. I have to put him down, and I'm scooting through sideways. He's screaming the whole time. He wants to be held. But there was no way to get through this opening holding anything. It was a squeeze. It was small. Jesus says kind of the same thing about a rich man. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, that's, that's a really funny image if you think about it. For the camel to go through the eye of a needle. I love what C.S. Lewis says commenting on that verse. He says, it's possible, but it's really hard on the camel. It's a great image. That's exactly what Jesus is saying about a rich man. You see, because entering the kingdom, entering the path to life, the entrance is so small you can come through it only empty-handed. You can't carry anything with you. You can't even carry your own life with you. You come empty and you squeeze through. And so if you've got all kinds of stuff, in fact, the more stuff you've got the more you got to let go of. And that is really, really hard 
just like a camel going through the eye of a needle. So Jesus says, the path to life, the entrance is small. You have to really intend to get through it. You have to really set out that I'm going through this gate and no other. Because if you were to just follow the crowd, if you were to just go with where everyone else is going, you would go through the large and inviting gate. But then he says another thing about this path. Not only is the entrance small, but the path is narrow. Like really, really narrow. It's hard to remain on it. It's difficult. It's very easy to fall off of it, to stray from it. You have to be diligent in remaining on the narrow path. Did you see a couple weeks ago this guy, this crazy guy that walked across the Grand Canyon? Did you see that? It was all over the news. I think it was carried on Discovery Channel. But this guy, I don't know if he was mentally ill or whatever, but he walks across about a half-inch cable that was stretched across the Grand Canyon, and he had no safety line at all. Okay? He had a, the only thing he had is a big balancing bar. And so this guy in jeans and a t-shirt walks across this wire. They had him mic'd up, and the dude was praying the whole time, every step. It was hilarious. I was, I was praying for him. I mean, just watching it, my stomach was in knots. The drop was as high as the Empire State Building in New York. I mean, it, this guy would not survive it. But yet, as you, walked, as you watched him, Walk, focused, concentrated. He did not take his eyes off of the wire. And there were all these winds, these gusts of winds that would come. And he'd have to squat down on the wire. So slow. Every step, watching every step, making sure it was perfectly on the narrow way. And I think, what a picture of the Christian life. This narrow way that you've got to focus on, that you've got to be intentional about remaining on. And the final thing Jesus says about this narrow way is that few find it. It would be easy to think, you know, if I just stick with the crowd, you know, especially as you look around at a crowd, if you're moving with a crowd, you tend to have some vague hope that somebody in here knows where we're going. You ever do that? You know, you're in some place and you don't know where to go, but you think, if I'm with the crowd, I'm okay. You know, that's what they think of the running of the bulls as well. You know, you think, there's just some vague hope it's going to be okay. Sometimes. That's how we think about life. In fact, many do. If I just go with the flow, it's all going to work out. And what Jesus says here is, it's not true. It's not true. He's warning us, be diligent and alert that you're on the narrow path, that you come through the gate that is life. He's calling for a diligence in us. So the way is narrow. The entrance is very small. I want to kind of hone in on the narrow uniqueness of the gospel. What makes this way So very narrow. And what are the classic ways in which we fall off or struggle with remaining on the narrow way? One of my favorite books is The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a book that was written in the 1500s by by John Bunyan. He was actually in prison whenever he wrote it. And The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory about the Christian life. 
It's a story about Christian who lives the, leaves the city of destruction and is on this pilgrimage to the celestial city. And it's about all of his experiences, coming to the cross, the burden falling off of his back. It's a picture of the Christian life. One of the things that I think this story does so well in communicating the essence of the Christian life is that it emphasizes pilgrimage. It emphasizes that the Christian life is a journey. It's not just something that has begun and it's all over at the very beginning. You're done. You've arrived. But it communicates that theme that is throughout Scripture, that we're like pilgrims making our way to a destination. And in one particular part in the story, I think is especially helpful. You see, as he is walking the narrow path, the narrow path ends up going right through the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. You see, he finds himself in this very, very dark season. It's not because he's strayed, but because the path actually goes right through it, the place of struggle. But he finds himself in this valley on the path and it begins to get so narrow and it begins to get so dark that he finds himself starting to slip off to one side of the narrow path. He finds himself slipping off into the ditch over on this side. And it's so painful and it's so difficult that whenever he finally gets back up on the narrow path, he kind of, he errs to this side so he doesn't fall over there, there again. You know what happens? He falls back down on the other side. He finds as he's trying to walk the narrow path, he finds himself falling off to one side or the other. Martin Luther shared this in a very similar way, this nature of the Christian life. Martin Luther said, the Christian life is kind of like a drunk man trying to ride a horse. You've probably thought that a lot, right? It's a great picture. The Christian life is like a drunk man trying to ride a horse. He keeps falling off on one side or the other. And so the drunk man falls off on one side, and whenever he finally gets back up on the horse, he leans to this side because he didn't want to fall over there again. But what happens? He ends up falling off on this side. He keeps falling off on one side or the other. It's the experience of the Christian life. It's the essence of how narrow it is. So what are these two ways that we fall off? What are the two ditches? What are the two counterfeits to the gospel way? They're essentially this, license and legalism. They're essentially, you might say, religion and irreligion, moralism and immoralism. Here's what I mean. The gospel is not license. It's very easy for us to fall off into that, to come to understand the riches and the extent of God's grace for us in Christ. And to begin to think, wow, this means I can live however I want to live. This means because I'm so forgiven, because I'm so accepted, because I'm so loved by God, then it doesn't really matter the things that I do. Or at least we tend to think, it's okay. This sin is not that bad. God will forgive it anyway. We tend to give ourselves to license, to see grace as an opportunity simply to live however we want to live. You see, Jesus constantly opposed this in His teaching. We saw it even in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember some of the things He said in there that are so restrictive and so hard? You remember He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a hard thing to say. 
These guys were really, really religious. What are some of the other things he says? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other places he says, If anyone will come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Now that's a familiar phrase to us, but it's kind of like Jesus saying, If you want to follow me, take your noose, hang it around your neck and let's go. Because we're going to die. Hard things. Whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the kingdom will find it. See, Jesus is not simply Savior. He's not simply one who comes to make us happy and take all of our guilt away. He's also King. He is also Lord. And the gospel is, we must submit to Him. We must belong to Him. So, so easy in our life, we begin to slide off to this side. And even in subtle ways, begin to say, it's not all that important how I present myself to Him. Is it really that big of a deal how I treat other people? Is it really that big of a deal how I'm living my life in these particular areas? After all, He is so loving. He is so accepting. And this is extremely popular in our culture, that there will be talk of God as loving, but there will be no talk of Him as holy. So this is one of the counterfeits of the gospel that so easily we find ourselves falling into. But how easy is it to fall into that and to begin then, as you, soon as you get back on the narrow road, to begin to err in the other direction and to fall into legalism or moralism? What is that? It's at its essence, I am accepted by God based upon what I do. You know, this is really the core of all religion around the world. You can sum up all religions in the world by this. It's essentially, you boil it down to this. I am accepted. I am justified. I arrive through through living up to this standard, through being in this particular way, through keeping these rules here. It's literally what has been hardwired into our souls. I am accepted based upon my performance. But Jesus opposed this throughout His ministry. Look just in the Sermon on the Mount. Most of the people that He is speaking against on the Sermon on the Mount are the religious people. Throughout His ministry, Jesus said things like, I didn't come for righteous people. I didn't come for healthy people. I came for sinners. I came for sick people. He would say things like, My burden is light. My yoke is easy. A smoldering wick I will not stuff out. Jesus was constantly in His interactions with the broken, with the sinners, with the people that had made a mess of their lives. Lavishing grace. Lavishing acceptance upon them. You see, the thing to realize is, The way that we come to God, the way that we find acceptance in life with Him is entirely by grace. It is entirely a gift. Both of these approaches, both of these counterfeits and these errors are essentially one and the same. You see, they're one and the same a part of the road to destruction. At their core, both of these approaches to God are a way to resist Him as Savior and Lord. Both of them are essentially a way to retain control of my life and to be my own Savior. That is at the core of it. Do you know this back and forth struggle in your own life? Which do you tend towards? Do you tend towards 
the license. God's loving. He will show grace. It doesn't matter how I live. It's okay. I mean, we obviously wouldn't voice those things, but functionally in our life, we tend to live that way. Or for others of us, it might be just the opposite that your tendency is. It might be to base his acceptance and his pleasure upon you based on how you're doing in the Christian life. You know, like whenever my willful conscious sins are infrequent, I tend to feel like he loves me and he accepts me. But whenever I'm struggling, in seasons of struggle, I feel far from him. In so subtle ways, we fall into this error, into this counterfeit. So what is the gospel? The gospel is entirely unique from both of these counterfeits. The gospel says you are accepted entirely upon the work of another. And now you belong to Him. He is your life. He is your righteousness. And you now belong to Him. The gospel way is not at its bottom a way to live. It's a person. It's being in union with Christ. That is the narrow way. That is the path to life. It's being in union with Christ as both Savior and Lord. Jesus says in John 10, He says, I am the gate. Whoever comes to me and passes through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. What an image of Himself as the gate. You see, it is Christ to whom we are united and covered by His righteousness. And it is Christ through belonging to Him, through depending upon Him, through submitting to Him, that we actually find life. C.S. Lewis has got a chapter at the end of Mere Christianity, which really captures well this dynamic. The name of the chapter is, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? Which is a wonderful kind of question. Is Christianity hard or easy? And he says essentially in the article, well, it's harder and it's easier at the same time. You might imagine the answer would be something like that. But he says this, here's how we typically approach God. Here's how we typically approach religion. We begin as our starting place with our natural self. That is, our self with our interests and our desires and our priorities in life. Us in control. That's our starting place. And we begin to notice that there's a certain amount of things that I do, which I prefer, which I enjoy, which I ought not to do. And then there's some other things that I don't like to do, that I'm not doing, that I actually realize that I need to do. And so what we try to do is we try to add those things to our life, add those things to our natural self as a way of getting on the right side, as a way of getting accepted. He said it's very much like an honest man paying his taxes. Says he'll pay his taxes all right, but he's hoping at the end there's some left over for him to live on. Our natural approach is to say, I'll give him some, whatever is required, but essentially I want to remain my own. What he says, what Jesus says is something far different. Jesus says, I don't so much want your time or your money or your work. I want you. I don't intend to have a few parts of you or some service to me, I intend to have the whole thing. Not just an arm or a leg, not just a branch here, a whole thing. I intend to have the whole tree up. 
I intend to kill the self is what I'm up to do. And then I'll replace it with myself. And so Lewis says, that's a lot harder. Because you see at the very beginning, at the very entrance, you've got to come to the place of saying, I give it all to you. It's at the very entrance of it. But then you find it actually becomes easier. Because what could be harder than trying to preserve your natural self and add to it a lot of restrictions? That's incredibly hard, incredibly burdensome. It is in coming to Christ that we actually find freedom. He will come in and go out and find pasture. I'll close with a scene from the Chronicles of Narnia where the children have just arrived in Narnia and they've just made their way to the beaver's house. And the beaver begins for the first time to talk about Aslan. And the very name of Aslan, the children find their hearts begin to leap. And so they ask beaver, can you tell us who this Aslan is and what he intends to do? And Lucy says, is he a man? And the beaver says, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe, Lucy asks? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. Make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe. Safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Lewis captures so well the person of Jesus. He is not safe. In coming to Him, He will demand it all. He asks for it all. But in Him, we find a goodness. We find that His heart towards us in all that He does in our life is good. And we find in Him a rest that goes beyond anything that we could try to secure for ourselves. We find in the person of Jesus the narrow way. In being in union with Him, in finding life in Him, in being changed through Him as His life is brokered through us. Let's pray together.